the word ekphrasis comes from the Greek for the description of the work of art produced as a rhetorical exercise. It is a vivid, often dramatic, verbal description of a visual art piece. This is Darwin Nesadu, aka Darwin Darko. Welcome to The Ekphrastic, a podcast where we paint pictures with words. Today's subject, Frank Morrison, a self-taught artist who began his career tagging walls in New Jersey as a teenager. This artist took the unconventional route. We'll get to know this creative a little bit better in a moment. But first, let's get into some art news. Okay, so um, we have three articles that I'm going to read today, but I'm only going to skim through the first two. They're kind of funny. That's cool. I'm going to spend a a, a lot, do a lot deeper, uh, a deeper dive on the third, on the third one. Uh, So first of all, the first thing is um, there was a 2,000 year old cat discovered in Peru, right? Okay, so it wasn't an actual cat. Uh, he's not 2,000 years old, but it's a drawing of a cat. I find this hilarious because it's not just us that, you know, obsessed with these cats on Instagram or, or on Twitter, you know, with these cat pictures and, and we're sharing memes of cats and, and uh, videos of cats. Um, they were obsessed with it too. This, this um, image of a cat was uh, designed, it's 37 meters long, y'all. Uh, so the it's called the Nazca Lines, uh, a UNESCO World Heritage Site is home to designs on the ground known as geoglyphs. You know, do you have hieroglyphs? This is a geoglyph. It's on it's on the uh, actual landscape. It, it, you know, it was drawn, created over two thousand years ago. Scientists believe that the cat and it's, you you could look this thing up. It's, it's a feline. You know, you see the ears and everything. It's hilarious. Um, scientists believe that the cat. Uh, as with other Nazca animal uh, figures, was created by making depressions in the desert floor, or leaving colored earth exposed. The cat then went unnoticed until plans were recently drawn up for a new path leading to an observation platform. Uh, the platform would have provided a vantage point for visitors to see many of the other uh, geoglyphs and inevitably <laughs> a cat picture. Uh, distracted everyone <laughs> and you get yourself down the rabbit hole it's happened to me it happens to the best of us the se- second one is a a quick one too it's, it's it's pretty hilarious i wish i could spend more time on this one but um uh the headline is in a twist two serial art thieves confess to having hidden klimt's portrait of a lady it's titled portrait of a lady inside a wall so that it might be discovered Right, this is this is cool. It's almost like out of a movie. So, in a stunning twist and an already strange tale, two men have confessed to stealing and then sneakily returning a Gustav Klimt's painting to a gallery in Italy. Get this: the painting was recently uh, uncovered by gardeners inside an exter- external wall um, of the same gallery from which it was stolen 24 years ago. This is this is hilarious. The the events occurred at um, Risi Odi Modern Art Gallery. It's probably like 
Rishi Odi Modern, <laughs> I don't know, I'm not Italian, a modern art gallery in the Italian pavilion of Piacenza. How's that? <laughs> Let me know. The police closed in on um, the pair of criminals after they wrote a letter to the local newspaper, Liberta, um, confessing to decades-old crime. So these guys are in their 60s now. It's hilarious. These guys are in their 60s now. A decade, of, you know, what, 40 years old, you know, uh, when, when they did this, 36 probably, when, when they stole this art, um, they never sold it or anything. You know, they kept it. They kept it safe. Um, when it the it was um, some official um, um, a, a conservation team came in to you know confirm oh yeah this is the actual piece and it's actually pretty good condition um, and so it it showed they, I guess they determined that you know the painting wasn't just hidden in that wall for those that you know the external wall of the museum for 23 years they must have like kept it somewhere you know safe and sound whatever for the entire time but it's it's hilarious it's if I ever go out. <laughs> If I go ever go out as something um, insidious, you know, <laughs> these guys are 60 years old. They're probably going to get some jail time if the statute of limitation is enough. Uh, but he's like, yeah, he was an art thief. <laughs> like, that's some, that's that, now that's a legacy, right? <laughs> like Pink Panther, right? Or something. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it makes me think about, I'm, okay, again, I, I say this every time. I'm an amateur art enthusiast, and I. This is some of the conspiracy stuff that I'd be thinking about. What's going on with the art world? The value that this painting is going to have now, a lot of it is going to be because of the story of the journey that this painting has. Less to do with the art, mind you. How about this? First of all, this uh, portrait of a lady, and uh, I encourage you to go check it out. It's Gustav Klimt's. This, this, there was an original painting already done on this, um, um, on this canvas, and then he painted over it, and and created the the, the final version of what we came up with, the painting of a of a lady, um, sometime between 1916 and 1917. So it's like, okay, you have that lore, okay, because there's this hidden picture under there that nobody can see anymore because you know there's this painting over it. But now you have to the the story of um, the, the, the theft and the journey, and it's been missing for over two decades. And then it will, re, it will return mysteriously. Uh, imagine if you're a private collector and you have this, you have a cocktail party at your crib and, oh, you know, boom, you have this whole story you could tell about this piece if you happen to, if you happen to get your hands on it. And that in itself increases the value of it. So, Here's the conspiracy theory. For me, it's like, you know, like these art thieves, are they, you know, could they possibly be industry plants? I, I mean, I, I mean, who, I could, I would, I would come up with a plan like that. Now, I'm not, the, I'm not, the, I'm not the sharpest tool in the, in the, um, in the shed, but if I do this and I can get a couple of these random pieces, you know, I mean, stolen, you know, with all the security that they have these places and, um, <laughs> and it's missing for 24 years, you can add to the value of that. If I was his, uh, if I was the foundation of the, the family, a member for this thing, you know, I would arrange for something like that to happen, you know, and, and, and I'm a great grandson or something. And now this thing is worth triple whatever, whatever it was, plus 
the artist is dead, that adds value to it. So, okay, I, I, I can go on for a long time with this. I, I said I was, I'll be brief, but this is kind of cool. These guys are, um, they returned it. It's in great condition. Um, and uh, it is returned to the museum. And I'm sure they're gonna just get a flood of patrons coming to the museum to visit just to see this piece that's been missing for so long. Um, and uh, especially in times when um, there's not as much uh, visitors coming to, to these, um, to the galleries, this is something that could draw people in. And uh, hopefully they, you know, they're all wearing masks and they're all staying socially distant, but um, you know, they all can get to see it. Um, but we'll put a pin in that conspiracy theory and we'll, visit, we'll revisit it sometime in the future. So here's the main thing that I wanted to talk about today. I feel like a broken record, but this is this is good. I, I, I particularly like this because there's a, there's a, it's almost like the opinion section um, from LA Times here. Uh, and it's in the entertainment and arts section. And the way the way this um, this uh, writer Christopher Knight is is writing on October nineteenth is a lot how I feel. And I've been talking about this deaccession uh, thing. And so Baltimore Museum of Art is using COVID as a cover to sell a Warhol floodgates open. He begins as night follows day. Natural disasters bring out the scammers ready to exploit public confusion and fear. The epic calamity of the COVID-19 pandemic is no exception. Since the virus began to spread, the Federal Trade Commission has logged more than 220,000 reports of counterfeit cures, useless insurance policies, and other ugly swindles being hawked to an unsuspecting public, at least 155 million to be lost. Not on that list, perhaps because the sleaze is almost too hard to wrap your head around, is a colossal art museum scandal. If a precedent gets set, the bonfire of the Baltimore Museum of Arts vanities um, threatens to take other museums with it. The BMA recently announced that it would liquidate upward of $73 million in important paintings from its permanent collection. A brief window of opportunity has been thrown wide when one of the nation's two leading museum professional associations, this was the history of the deaccessions, um, relaxed the rules, hoping to ease expected financial fallout from the COVID-19 tragedy. Baltimore soon ripped open an ethical breach big enough to drive a truck through. The disturbing Maryland move even managed a twofer, vandalizing the other professionals groups, best practices for an art museum's key responsibility direct care of a collection succumbed to cringe-inducing carelessness. The liquidation features three contemporary paintings made between 1957 and 1988 by Andy Warhol. Uh, Andy Warhol, Bryce Martin, and an abstract um, expressionist Clifford Still. Major American artists all of, in, in their own right. Together, the high estimates of the monetary value of the, of the Martin and Still uh, paintings set for Sotheby's auction on October 28th uh, is 33 million. By the way, Sotheby's, you're culpable. You're culpable. They need a place to sell and to auction this stuff off. You're culpable. And I'm, I'm betting this is gonna be a private sale. Let's, let's read on. Um, it's not gonna be done publicly. The Warhol, a monumental 1986 uh, canvas that abuts two screen versions of Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. So if you've seen The Last Supper, uh, this Da Vinci is, um, it's, 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 a, it's pretty much 
the yellow overlay over the the Last Supper. Uh, you can probably look it up. Uh, it was a silkscreen version of Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper in black ink in a vivid yellow background. Uh, it's it's being privately offered to collectors through a closed door sale, of course, by Sotheby's, rather than a public auction. <laughs> the reported like this is so so insidious. The reported guarantee is $40 million. The market for the late Warhol painting has been erratic, uh, erratic, but that figure is 20 million less than Christie's, a rival auction house uh, that got uh, at a public auction three years ago for a comparable Warhol from the same series. And, and this is the, the Warhol's last series uh, before he died. Inexplicably, the BMA did not approach Christie's for a competitive bid according to a source with direct knowledge to the uh, situation. That ineptitude merely amplifies the bigger scandal. The planned sell-off was concocted by three museum employees, all contemporary art specialists, according to several people with knowledge of the event. The people requested anonymity to speak freely, uh, fearful of retaliation over public disclosure of sensitive information. Oh my goodness, it's, uh, I guess it's pretty, pretty, pretty dangerous. Uh, uh, being inside the um, the uh, inner inner circle of uh, some of these uh, museums here, um, uh, what are you going to get death threats? Um, you're going to well, probably. I mean, if you if you want to have a career in the industry, then you, you you could probably be shut out in in other spaces. I, I guess there's there's that much risk there, but uh, it sounds pretty. Um, what is it? Black hat happening over here? Director Christopher Bedford, a former assistant curator at the Los Angeles. Uh, County Museum of Art steered a controversial 2018 BMA de of seven works that included two other Warhol paintings. So, so the Baltimore Museum here is they they've been going ham on this uh, de thing. They're taking full advantage of it. They're not even they're not even waiting to see which uh, what kind of adjustments they can make. I mean, other places are making adjustments. They're um, they're allowing for um, what is it throttling on and off how much people they allow in these spaces and it doesn't seem to me as if uh, the BMA is is even considering those efforts before selling off the stuff and this is going to suck if it ends up being a private sale to a private collector at somebody's house in LA somewhere how is how is somebody like me ever going to go see this thing and experience it in person how is somebody like you know, your kids ever going to get that. That could be the thing that inspired them to fully immerse themselves into um, in, into their creativity, uh, becoming an artist. You know, this is funny because we're actually going to read uh, today's, we're going to talk about Frank Morrison today. And uh, this kind of ties into that a little bit. And uh, we'll, we'll get to that later. Uh, but yeah, this is kind of upsetting that it seems like the BMA since 2018 has, has been doing this. And that was pre-COVID, people. That was pre-COVID. It seems to be a cultural thing happening here, and um, it's not good. They sh maybe somebody needs to be reprimanded. I don't know about you know accreditation or something that needs to happen or whatever state funds that's going to them. I know they're getting state funds and federal funds for you know you know these cultural centers that uh, that are affected by COVID, uh, but they can't just be you know playing fast and loose like this. This isn't right. Okay, so uh, let's see. The pop icon typically a top is typically a top market performer. Sotheby's handled 
that sale too uh, back in uh, 2018 in which the star uh, Starlot Franz Klein's 1956 uh, Green Cross sold for just 4.4 million on a low estimate of 6.5 million. The auction house reportedly came up nearly 5 million short on the expected final tally. Second, Bedford created the staff position of chief curator for Asma Naim's two years ago. Her professional history melds art and social justice. Before her four-year prior tenure as associate curator of prints, drawings, and media, and media art at the uh, National Portrait Gallery, Naim was a New York assistant district attorney. Third, Katie Siegel, a critic and professor at Stony Brook University in New York, worked for Bedford earlier at a university museum in Massachusetts. She holds an adjunct research position at the BMA. The trio developed a pitch to museum trustees for the liquidation plan. In their eyes, the three paintings' unforgivable sin is possessing monetary value that outstrips their artistic worth. Income generated by the painting's sale would fill two endowments. The lion's share earmarked for direct care of the museum's collection, plus $10 million set aside for further art acquisitions. There's just one hitch. However public-spirited, the plan stomps all over best practices for deaccession art, as if no such standard exists. Deaccessioning is the word for the routine process of formally removing an item from, from a museum's permanent collection art that is irrelevant to the institution's mandate, in poor condition, fake, or discovered to have been looted. The motivations for a deaccession are many. A conventional practice for collection management. Its end result is often, but not always, the art's sale. This is a pretty, this is a pretty long piece. Um, I hope you can find it in um, the LA Times. I'm, I'm going to skip a, a lot here for time's sake, uh, but I feel if I just keep on reading through it, I'm just going to get more and more upset. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll go towards the end here. Uh, it, it could, I could probably go on for another 15, 20 minutes on it. Um, but the artist pretty much, I'm sorry, the, um, the author concludes, it didn't have to be this way. Rather than trash the art collection, suppose the museum had done some sharp-eyed community building. Suppose it launched a social equity capital campaign to, to achieve its goals. The $2.5 million and expenditure reportedly required to fully fund Bedford's vision of equity and collection care is relatively modest. Eight million Americans have slipped into poverty during the pandemic, with Black, Latino, and Indigenous people taking the biggest hits. But the nation's richest people have become $845 billion wealthier during the first six months of COVID-19. That's a lot of unexpected money gained by just the kind of people who tend to populate art museum boards and fund cultural programs. Imagine a prominent art museum rallying the community for a capital campaign, positioning itself as central to a diversified civic life. This was what I was saying earlier, they didn't even try. They, didn't, they haven't tried since 2018. The plan requires more effort than calling up an auction house. It could, be, it could embed the museum with the diverse population of its region in ways that merely selling from the collection cannot. For 40 years since the Reagan era's fitted dawn, we've built an increasingly unequal society on the lie 
that the market is the answer to all our problems, a lie that this, the accession maneuver, still accepts. In its aftermath, recriminations swirl in Baltimore. Conspiracy theories float. Ding! <laughs> Intimidation to ensure silence inside the museum is claimed all unleashed by an outrageous money grab hidden behind the mask of a deadly virus. However, potentially worthwhile Bedford's program changes might be, they are not worth this. The Baltimore Museum of Art is now the leading poster child for art collection carelessness. The sell-off to fund operations sets a precedent for the art museum. The public loss will be immense. We, we said before, it's going to get out of hand. Looks like there are some folks out here that are that are beating us to it. They are way ahead of the game. And uh, maybe public outcry uh, will we'll get them to at least slow this down, temper this down, maybe. Maybe cease and desist. So that's your art news. Let's get back to our artist, Frank Morrison. Frank Morrison was born in Massachusetts in 1971 and then moved to New Jersey at an early age. He grew up during the early days of rap music, graffiti, and breakdancing. Today, Frank lives in Atlanta, Georgia with his wife and five kids, uh, but his journey started as a graffiti artist in Jersey, tagging walls with spray paint. In no time, invested with a brilliant flow of creativity, his eye for an execution of colorful tags and rest-in-peace scenes began to bring him considerable street recognition and local acclaim. But what soon pleased him more was his mounting reputation as a b-boy, breakdancing, popping, and locking with such skill and control that he became a regular on the dance crew of R&B star Sybil. After a couple of years traveling with her, he joined the touring crew of Sugar Hill Gang. He appeared on Showtime at the Apollo. He performed in rap video Rap Mania and with the dance company of the movie New Jack City. In fact, it was while dancing and touring in Europe that he chanced to visit the Louvre Museum in Paris. That's where he met his muse. As he walked to the halls there, he was consumed by what he saw. Looking at the works of the masters in the Louvre, he was, he was reminded of what he had unconsciously reached for in his sprawling graffiti pieces. He recognized realms of color, style, passionate expression and possibilities that he had never before imagined. An early indoctrination of, uh, into hip-hop, into the hip-hop culture, can be, seen, can be seen in Morrison's work, which has been dubbed a mashup of urban mannerisms, graffiti, and abstract contemporary, and reflects deeply on the loss of human stories from past eras. Citing both Ernie Barnes and Annie Lee as forebearers of this tradition, Morrison remarks on his practice. My work dignifies the evolution of everyday, underrepresented people and places within the urban landscape. I seek to both highlight and preserve the soul of the city through the lens of hip-hop culture and urban iconography. I want people to experience the visual rhythms that choreograph life for the average everyday person. End quote. One need only take a cursory examination of his portfolio or his work in gallery to find that his inspiration is a product of his deeply religious grounding 
and his con con uh, commitment to family. The exaggerated body parts and flowing motion of the characters depicted in Frank's artwork are his signature and provide us with a glimpse of his endless creativity and talent, his innate musicality, natural rhythmic bent, and intrinsic understanding of physical, spiritual, emotional expression both invade and explode from his paintings. You can confirm Morrison piece because each of his paintings bear his signature, of course, uh, but the artist feels he, he says, tremendously blessed by the gifts of talent and family. And so he consistently acknowledges this by registering his thanks to God with his trademark inscription, TTG, found in each of his work. Today's ekphrastic poem is from none other than Jack Black. Yes, that Jack Black from the White Stripes. He may not have had this painting in mind at the time, but I do, and it fits. So here's how this works, folks. Remember, this is a description of a visual art piece. As I'm speaking, I want you to visit the ekphrastic page on my website, darwindarko.com. There, you will find a catalog of all the artwork we discuss. Uh, to accompany today's reading, I want you to pull up the image of Jack Morrison's freedom. It's number six. I'll give you a second to search for it in your browser. What melanin magic has turned a multitude into mush? Mandibles drop from shock. A black lady at high altitude whispers, hush. She flips off her white shoes and grabs her tenor pacifier from its stand. Thirty half steps to the microphone, smile on her face, flower in her hair. Oh, how a crowd can melt when they've been dealt such a deliciously delicate blow by a barefoot fairy, not with a clang, but a whisper, totally stealing the show. Fools desire distraction and not take to heart their faces to their gadgets fall south, ignoring the beauty of fog on a hill and a kitten with a mouse in its mouth. A motley mob settles down and there's hardly a frown as the air in the temple turns to mist. A spotlight, a mark, and a cleanse of the throat, and her microphone gently is kissed. You can hear a boot lace, and a speck of dust taste, as the babe bravely stares down the herd, but she danced not a note, and only one moment spoke, the simple, and poignant five words, you people are totally absurd. If you want to experience this lyrical contribution in his own voice, check out the track Esmeralda Steals the Show from Jack White's 2018 album, Boarding House. Frank has been a society of illustrators, original art, silver medal honoree two years in a row. He is the illustrator for over 20 children's books, including Coretta Scott King and John Steptoe Award winner 
Jazzy Ms. Mozetta, and Credit Scott King illustrator on her books, Little Melba and Her Big Trombone, and Let the Children March. His works are part of private collections of art patrons like Peggy Cooper Caffritz and Derek Jeter, you know, the athlete, the baseball guy. He has also been commissioned to create works for recording artist Switz Beats and Emmy Award running writer Jordan Peele for the movie Get Out. Morrison's work has been featured at Art Basel, uh, Art Basel in Miami. I, I'm from Miami. Uh, I'm, I've, I don't know if I've uh, actually come across a Frank Morrison uh, piece uh, in Miami. I've actually only been to Art Basel once. I have to get back out there. And it's, he's, his work has also been shown at the Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture and the Mason Fine Arts Gallery in um, Atlanta, Georgia. If you are new to the art game, hear me. If you are new to your art game and you can get your hands on an original Morrison, I say jump on it. Because soon, this is gonna be out of our price range. <laughs> no joke. His stuff is amazing. Vibrant colors, emblematic of the um, the whole diaspora. So, jump on if you get a chance, um, and and you, you know, I, you can line up an entire hallway in your house, maybe just some ideas. You know what I mean? You don't have to credit me, but boom, the hallway. You know what I mean? Going to the living room, a couple more Morrison's uh, lined up there. <laughs> but um, uh, it's been fun, guys, uh, sharing this art with you. Uh, thanks for joining me on another colorful, color-filled journey. Uh, remember, you can find this episode and others archived at darwindarker.com. I'm Darren Mesidu. Thanks for listening.